In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to Unfiltered. My name is Ollie Dugmore. My guest today was, by his own admission, an unexceptional student from an unexceptional suburb. But at age 43, he'd achieved the extraordinary, becoming the first Briton to visit the International Space Station. An interest in flight led him to a career as a military test pilot, and an application process, completed by 8,000 other hopefuls, secured him a place as one of three astronauts launched into space in December 2015. Last month, it was reported that my guest was coming out of retirement to lead the UK's first astronaut mission. It follows the release of his new book, Space, The Human Story, which traces the lives of the men and women who left the Earth's atmosphere before him, forging a path that made his own spacewalk possible. My guest today is Tim Peake. Tim, how are you? Hello. I'm very good, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Good. It's a pleasure. Um, We'll get straight into it. Why was now the right time to come out of retirement? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how the media portrays things. I, ne- I never considered myself in retirement. Sure. Um, so I was a, a member of the European Space Agency in their astronaut corps, and I uh, stepped down from that in January this year because I wanted to pursue other things back here in the UK. Um, but at the grand old age of, of 50, I don't consider myself <laughs> to be retired. But um, no, it's been an interesting year. There's mm. There's been a lot happening in the commercial space sector. And, and part of what I wanted to do was actually to work with space industries, especially in the UK. We've got a number of sort of startups in the new space sector. Um, and as it happens, the, the UK government has recently signed a memorandum of understanding with a company called Axiom Space which are looking to launch an all-UK mission at some point in the future. So at the moment, it's early days and there's still hurdles to overcome, but um, I'm certainly working with UKSA and Axiom and hoping to make that mission a reality. So tell us more about that mission then. What, what ideally would it involve? Well, it would be a first uh, in that it would be a fully commercially sponsored mission. So at no cost to the UK taxpayer. Um, very excitingly, for... British astronauts on that mission. The crew haven't been named yet, uh, despite some of the, the media saying that I've you know, already been assigned to it to lead it. Um, but clearly, I'm an interested party. And um, it would be science-based, educational-based as well, with a good educational outreach program, um, probably going to the International Space Station. That's the most likely destination. Um, and uh, and really, by, by having this new model of commercially sponsored yet government-run missions, it would be a, an absolute first and paving the way for other nations perhaps to do the same. Could you talk a little bit more about one of the words you used there, first? Because obviously in this, in this line of work, in this area, we really are at the frontier of sort of human civilization, human advancement. And by virtue of that, a lot of the stuff that happens is the first time X has happened, the first time Y will happen. Do you feel that weight, the sort of the significance of those things when, when, when you're talking about this, whether it's, you know, yourself going up there or this stuff that's going to happen in the future? I think certainly in space, it, it relates to the fact that things are happening so quickly. Um, we've had a period of real stability with the International Space Station. It's 23 years of being permanently crewed. Um, and when you think what's happened since uh, Gene Cernan in 1972, the last man on the moon, it has all been in low Earth orbit as ter- in far as human exploration. 
And that is all changing. And that's why there are so many firsts, because there's this commercialization of space occurring. Uh, life beyond the International Space Station will be very different in low Earth orbit. The, uh, you know, we have the Artemis program with NASA and the international partners, ourselves, European Space Agency, UK Space Agency being part of that Artemis program. You know, it, it's exciting times. And I think that's why there are so many firsts right now. Talking about this sort of increasing commercialization, privatization of space exploration. Could you talk about that a little bit more? Tell me your view of it, because obviously, you know, previously, I, I guess whenever you, you use the phrase, I'm, I immediately, the images evoked in my mind are sort of NASA or the Soviet efforts. You know, those are the things that first come, which are obviously state-sponsored and the geopolitics around that. Now it's moving more towards private enterprise. What's your view of that transition? I think it's inevitable, um, and there are many reasons for that. And in terms of the, the kind of the national space agencies, they actually need low Earth orbit to become commercially uh, viable, so that it can free up government resources to do a deep space exploration program to consider going back to the moon and, and, and as a stepping stone to a future missions to Mars, for example, in a longer term exploration program. Mm. Um, you can't run an international space station and have a deep space exploration program at the same time on the budgets that we're talking about. When NASA went to the moon, um, it was almost 4.9% of their GDP, the Apollo program at the height of it. That's unsustainable. Um, the, those budgets are, are orders of magnitude less now today. So we have to be much more careful about how we spend the money. So from that point of view, commercialization, I guess, is a, is a necessity in order to free up resources for going further. But it's also about the cost of getting to space has come down remarkably. It used to be about $57,000 to get one kilogram into Earth's orbit on the space shuttle. Now on a Falcon Heavy with SpaceX, it's about $1,500. Uh, and on Starship, when that will be up, up and running, could be as low as about $200. Wow. So because it's now so much cheaper to get into space, and um, with Starship, for example, you could be taking 100 tons to low Earth orbit with every launch, this is opening up massive opportunities that simply didn't exist 20 years ago. And that's why I think we're seeing this rapid acceleration of commercialization. It's worth just pausing, isn't it, and reconsidering that, you know, those early NASA missions. I, um, in my day job, I'm the political editor at Joe, and I interviewed, there's a, a professor I speak to a lot called Mariana Matsukato, and she talks about sort of the lessons that government can learn from the sort of the moot, she calls it like moonshot, mission-driven government, basically, where you sort of pick a target and you say, this is what we're going to want to achieve, whether it's, I don't know, um, no child goes to school hungry, or we complete the green transition in a, in a just and fair way. You pick this mission and you say, doesn't matter how we get there, we're going to get there. And you sort of empower, incentivize people to make these bold decisions. And you end up with all of the, you know, the extraordinary technology, for example, that comes as a result of that program. And it's almost mm -hmm. a fortunate byproduct of picking this, at the time, what seems like a crazy goal, but saying, we're going to go for it. I mean, if you could talk a little bit about the kind of beyond the sort of the nuts and bolts of the actual space travel side of things, what it is that perhaps societies or us as individuals could learn from those programs. Yes, well, what we've been learning for several years now in, in low Earth orbit is just how uh, microgravity can enable you to learn new things. So it's a parameter. Any scientists like to change parameters, whether it's temperature or pressure or humidity, whatever it might be. So you go into a zero gravity of environment effectively, and we're learning new things. A lot of things about how things grow. Because in, in Earth's gravity, if you want to grow things, you've got gravity, you've got sedimentation, you've got fracturing, you've got impurities. Uh, for example, protein crystals. If you try and grow a crystal on Earth, it's going to be degraded. If you grow a protein crystal in microgravity, it will be very large and very pure. And so if you take a disease-causing protein like motor neurone disease or Parkinson's or Huntington's disease, we can grow very pure disease-causing protein crystals, bring them back down to Earth once they're fully formed, and then use crystallography to work out what pharmaceuticals we need to make that can wrap around that disease-causing protein like a 3D jigsaw puzzle, which means far, far better drugs for patients, low dosages, low side effects. Um, now, we had no idea of that when we first started exploring space. That's why you go there. You go to change a parameter. And in the same way that you can grow things, you can build things. You can print, uh, for example, a heart using bio ink 
in microgravity. Now, on Earth, if you try and uh, actually manufacture a, an organ, it needs some sort of scaffolding. Again, it will collapse because of gravity. Um, but the future could be that we're printing, you know, human organs made to the specific patients using their own um, sort of DNA and cell structure uh, and bringing those organs back down to Earth. That's the kind of areas that this research may end up leading to in microgravity. And then when we look at the moon and Mars beyond, obviously, that's more about exploration and what's out there uh, and, and what resources there may be uh, on the moon that could be useful or just in terms of what we might learn from the moon. It's a four billion year old repository of the solar system, really. And it used to be part of Earth, so it can teach us a lot about Earth. Mm, absolutely. If we um, let's go back and start your sort of personal journey in what eventually would lead you into space. Um, 2008, I think it is, when you responded to an advert by the European Space Agency looking for, quote, seeking new talents to reinforce its astronaut team. Why did you want to apply? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was a test pilot at the time. Uh, I'd been in the military for about 18 years and I loved flying, always had done it. And I tried during my military career to stay in the cockpit as much as possible. At times I was kind of uh, encouraged to go down the promotion route and be, you know, go to staff college, go and do a desk job, etc. Uh, and I was more towards, no, I want to stay flying, being an instructor pilot, be a test pilot. So as a test pilot, we were working already with the space industry because that's often where there's lots of cutting edge technology and that filters down into aviation. So when the European Space Agency had a selection process, uh, I was already familiar with kind of what was going on in space and thought, wow, as a test pilot, that's effectively what astronauts are doing. Every mission to the space station is a test mission, testing new bits of equipment, technology, and what a fantastic thing to an environment to be working in. What sort of... Um... What sort of stuff were you flying when you were in the forces? In the forces, I was flying mainly helicopters. Um, I went to the Boscombe Down Empire Test Pilot School where uh, you get to fly a bit of everything. So I flew fast jets and big heavy transport. But then as, as an operational test pilot, went back to helicopters. Apache was um, one aircraft that I specialized in. I flew that for about 10 years. Uh, but also Lynx, Gazelle, Chinook, Merlin are pretty much uh, all military helicopters. I, um, I had the opportunity to go in a Chinook and a few others actually. Um, reporting on military exercises the first time it was the first time i've ever been in a helicopter and that sort of I, I don't know how to describe it's almost like weightlessness when you just start to move up vertically and what on earth is happening i mean could you talk a little bit about your first time sort of experiencing or perhaps actually controlling that feeling yeah, well, I remember the first experience I had in a helicopter as a, as a potential young officer who went to Middle Wallet, the home of the Army Air Corps, and remember being taken up on a familiarization trip. And uh, it was in a gazelle, so they have a big perspex bubble on the front, so there's really nothing beneath your feet. And you sit in it like a, an old MG sports car. It's kind of feet out in front of you, and it's got a faint smell of oil about it as well. So, uh, it, But it's, it's a wonderful experience. And as the pilot kind of dipped the nose to accelerate down, down the runway and did this uh, very fast, very low takeoff uh which he didn't need to do at all in a helicopter <laughs> it was just basically giving giving us all a good ride in the back and mm -hmm. just thinking wow this is this is what i want to do was that the moment was that the moment that you realized that or has it been something you held on to for a bit longer? It's been, it had been something i'd been working towards I, as a cadet at school i got to go on gliding trips and i think the first time i sat in a glider that's when i really fell in love with with flying and wanted to really set my sights on that as a as a career but I, I liked air shows even beyond that. You know, before that, when I was growing up, my dad would take me to air shows and I always had this love of flying. The glider, I find the concepts of them slightly terrifying in that obviously there's not really, <laughs> you are just sort of floating around, right? Um, was it a terrifying experience doing it for the first time? Um, it wasn't, but you're right. You've got a finite amount of time. Uh, and, that's, and, well, that's one way. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> to a degree, the amount of time you have depends on your skill levels, whether mm. you're going to find those thermals or not. So you've always got to be aware of, of, of where you might need to land. But I think that's a really good lesson to go on to fly helicopters because in helicopters, um, you know, you tend to always be looking out for somewhere that you might just need to put it down in case there's a problem. Mm. Uh, unlike aircraft, which tend to want to fly when things go wrong, mm. um, uh, helicopters don't. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about that, that training program then for the ESA. You beat, I think it's about 8,000 other applicants. What sort of traits, abilities were they looking out for in that selection process? Yeah, that's really interesting because um, the main things that they were looking out for were actually what we would call the soft skills, um, the kind of things about communication, about teamwork, about how you 
work under pressure, um, your leadership skills, uh, um, your sort of initiative tests, these kind of things. There isn't there's an element of of what gets you through the door, your academic qualifications and, and the hard skills. And they test that in one very intensive day in front of computers. Uh, there'd be a little bit about your sort of memory retention and spatial awareness and coordination, the kind of things that you can't really revise for. You either have that or not. But having tested that, the you know, this year-long selection process, it really focuses on, on those soft skills that are so important for working, not just on a space station with international astronauts, but in so many other fields of work as well. There is a, there is a degree of uh, physical testing, right, as well, that there is like fitness yeah. that are required. There is. Well, what was really interesting, at the same time that the European Space Agency were having their selection in 2008, so were the Canadians, the Americans and the Japanese. And for Europe, our physical testing was really about getting on a treadmill and just testing our VO2 max. And, and, and it was more like a medical rather than actually seeing how fit or strong we were. When I was talking to my Canadian colleagues and, and some of their testing was <laughs> involved diving to the bottom of pools and having to hold your breath while so solving a puzzle uh, down in the depths of a pool or uh, in a, a, a water filling chamber and you ha having to fill, you know, solve these puzzles before the water filled up on you and uh, above your neck and you went underwater. And, and it was amazing to see the difference between the different space agencies as to how they approach some That's of the really aspects of, of selection. But generally speaking, the space agencies are not looking for supreme levels of fitness. What they're looking for is a low risk of having a medical problem. Right. They're, they're looking for medical robustness so that, you know, if you're on the space station, you, you're unlikely to have a cardio problem or a, an eyesight problem or, or anything else that might hinder the mission. Mm. There is... Am I right in saying there is like a baseline of fitness you need because of, you know, the level of G-force you're going to be put under and things like that? You do have to be of a certain standard, right? Yes, you do. And also it benefits you. The, the fitter you are, then the easier it's going to be to do some of the training, some of the task, and certainly for returning to Earth, which can be quite punishing. Oh, tell um, me more about that. Well, uh, when you come back into a gravity environment, um, your, your body changes a lot when it goes into space, into weightlessness. Your muscles will start to atrophy if you don't keep fit. Your bone density uh, will atrophy as well. Uh, you mentioned cardiovascular system ages about 20 years and your immune system changes, your skin ages, all these things. Your body is, is actually trying to recognize the situation it's in and trying to make itself as efficient as possible for working in weightlessness. And that's great for working in weightlessness, but it's not great for coming back to the planet. Yeah, and when you come back into a gravity environment, I mean, your, your spine gets crushed back again, your balance, your proprioceptive system has to readjust, um, your, wow. your muscles have to realign everything. And so the fitter you are, the stronger you are, then the easier you're going to find that transformation. Is it painful coming back then? Can be yes, and it can be painful going into space in terms of you know your your uh, back elongating. Some people suffer with back pain. Uh, I was quite fortunate; I didn't suffer at all going into space. Coming back for the first two or three days, um, I felt you know quite nauseous with vertigo, and uh, my proprioceptive system, my balance was all off as well. So it actually took me a, you know longer to adjust to a gravity environment than it did to getting into space. Quite ironic, hasn't it? You've been yeah. orbiting the Earth and then you get back down to sea level and you've got vertigo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> From the short straw. Um, okay, so what was it then you think that made you stand out in that selection process? What was it about you that, that they liked? Um, we're never really told the answer to that question, but um, I guess it's it being a bit of a, an all-rounder. Um, and I think also during the interview process is giving the agency the confidence that they know the person in the chair, um, you have a you know a one-hour interview, and they really have to know who you are in that one hour. Otherwise, you're a risk. And there are so many other candidates. If there's mm -hmm. any risk, um, even though even if you might have the potential to be an exceptional astronaut, if there's some risk, then there are other people waiting who will take that seat. So I think being open, being honest um, about your answers, and um, that that ability to kind of communicate and get on with other people is is paramount. There's almost a degree of, um, you know, not being able to over revise or, or present a fault because really it's just a case of I am who I am and either I'll fit this or I won't. Yeah. You can't you can't really pretend otherwise. Or No, you're absolutely right. I think for me, it, it really helped going through the process that I didn't actually ever think I would make it <laughs> in, in that um, I saw the selection process as something I would love to do, a job I would really love to do. So I was serious about it. I was mm. committed to it. 
Um, but at the same time, I thought, well, the chances are that I won't make it. So I've got to be prepared for that. Um, and I'll use this experience to benefit me in the future anyway. What a wonderful opportunity to go through selection. And I thought they weren't going to select a Brit because mm. at the time we, we weren't paying any money into ESA's human spaceflight program. So I guess that enabled me to be a bit more relaxed about the entire selection process. And I was myself. I thought, well, if I'm the right person for the job, you'll pick me. Mm. If I'm not the right person for the job, you won't. And that's probably a good thing for you. And it's a good thing for me too. So let the experts decide. And if I had any advice to anybody going through the selection process, it is just to be yourself and relax because the most important thing is that they know you as well as they can in a short space of time. Interesting. What skills do you think uh, from being a test pilot fed into your, your, your selection eventual journey? Uh, well, clearly your ability to analyze a situation and come up with uh, solutions to problems in a, in a time efficient manner. That's what we do as test pilots. And we manage risk as well. We're being asked often to push the boundaries of aircraft. And we do that um, uh, not in a sort of a adrenaline fueled manner, uh, although some of the missions might, <laughs> might involve a fair amount of adrenaline, but we do it in a very controlled, progressive manner. And we do it with a lot of risk mitigation. Uh, and we're very analytical about everything we do. And, and that kind of approach to problem solving in the space industry is, is also very important as well. How does one uh, you know, in, in a situation like the ones you just described, adrenaline soaked, you know, you've mitigated the risk, but there is still a degree of risk there. What are your sort of coping mechanisms, your decision making processes? How do you try and limit the fact? Because, you know, biologically, your body is telling you this, this is a, this is dangerous. This is an intense situation. It's flooding you with all these chemicals. It's obviously in your interest. You can harness that as well as it being a yeah, being a potential yeah. dangerous thing for you as well, right? Yeah, you absolutely can. And I think that's what you do is you normalize the situation and, and then you you harness that the adrenaline and to focus on on the problems and to you know come up with solutions. Um, and that's something that we're we're doing all the time. And I think it's just through training and preparation, because the more you understand, the more you know about a situation, then it's giving you options for if and when things go wrong. And that's, you know, bailed me out on a number of different times in my test flying career where the manual hasn't been written for this particular emergency. So what you're relying now on is do you fully understand the electrical system, the hydraulic system, the fuel system, the, the software systems so that you can start going off piste here because you need to go off piste to find a, you know, a solution very, very quickly. Mm. Um, and certainly that's that's kind of what we do in, in space as well. We we really have to prepare and train and understand the problem. And it reminds me back to uh, Neil Armstrong on his Gemini 8 mission, where the uh, the module they were trying to, they were docking, doing the first ever docking to an Agena module in their Gemini capsule. And, and that bit went really smoothly. But then a small rotation built up, which they thought was the Agena module causing a problem. So they undocked and it actually wasn't a gene, it was their own Gemini capsule, which then went into an uncontrollable spin. And the G-forces rapidly built up, the crew were about to lose consciousness and Armstrong's you know, meticulous attention to detail, he knew that spacecraft inside out. Um, and without any communication with anybody else, he was able to disable systems, bring up other systems, and then to work out what the pitch roll and yaw was doing and then to put in the right controls to counter that and stabilize the spacecraft and bring it all back under control and i just think that was an exceptional piece of you know of flying essentially of controlling a spacecraft i think i've worked like spinach in those <laughs> kind of circumstances to be honest with you you're just saying there i'm thinking it through my head oh yeah i've got them i don't think i cut the mustard Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. High levels of attention, concentration. We've mentioned physical fitness a little bit as well. Are those kind of the stand the standout things you think that we're we're talking about if we're talking character traits? Yes, but it does come back to now we're looking at long duration space flight. That's a very different to what was going on in the early days of the, the Apollo program, Gemini, Mercury and the, and the Soviets uh, and that space race era where they kind of went for the, the narrow pool of fast jet test pilots because clearly, you know, if you're going to have a test program, then at least you've got some individuals who have certain qualities that are going to be useful. Now, when you're going off for a six month mission, maybe a year long mission to the space station and the getting there and the getting back is a tiny, tiny percentage of that overall mission. Yeah. Actually, you need to be a scientist. You need to be an engineer, a medical doctor, a dentist, an IT expert, a plumber. Um, and there are so many other skills needed. And wrapped up in that is the ability to get on with other people. So that's why it's interesting how the selection process is kind of slowly morphing over the years. Can we talk about that psychological side of things then as well? Because it's not just the physical. It's not just the, you know, are you a brilliant pilot? It is... How are you going to cope being in that confined space for that period of time? So could you talk about that? Well, first of all, let's start with selection. How do you think you were assessed for, for those kind of things? Yeah, during selection, again, it's about the agency knowing you in a short space of time. So they'll ask you lots of questions about what, what do you do, sports and hobbies? What's your attitude to risk? You know, give me an example of, of something that really pushed you out of your comfort zone. And you'll get, a, you know, it's interesting. Some people, uh, their idea of pushing themselves out of their comfort zone is this, you know, not, not other people's idea. So you instantly yeah. get a, a feeling of what this person may have done and how comfortable they may be with elements of, of, of risk and what they're doing. Um, and so that selection process is kind of designed to analyze part of that whole psychological mm -hmm. profile of the kind of character that you need to be and then in training how do they develop that well in training we do things like um, go and live in a cave for eight days uh, and um, under very stressful conditions you know physical and, and psychological pressures put on us artificially to try and push us out of our comfort zone to like build what? that resilience um, well, uh, watches taken away, deprived of any sense of time, sleep deprived, food deprived, um, wet caves uh, with you know no changes of clothing, this kind of thing. So um, it's very, very easy to make people uncomfortable. I realized that early on in my army days, you don't have to work too hard and, yeah. and then people's personality changes. And so it's recognizing how you react under those conditions and how you work with other people. Um, and I think the more that you understand yourself, then then the more confidence you'll have when you go into space that you you can draw on those experiences. You've been there before. You know what it's like. You know what discomfort's like and just kind of knuckle down and get up, get on with it. There's a really good, I've forgotten the name of it now, which I'm doing a disservice. There was, was sort of um, mid-noughties, I think. There was a, a Channel 4 documentary about a guy who signed up. He was a filmmaker, about 50, signed up for Marines selection. And... I was, and he went and did a tour with them actually as well. He did everything apart from the weapons stuff because he was a journalist. And I was amazed watching the sort of the, the training, the selection, well, the selection process. The, one of the instructors says, we just make people cold, wet and miserable. Yeah. That's all it is. And we just, and we see if they, and see if they break. And I thought it can't be that simple. I mean, you watch it and it is, that is what it is. Yeah. And people will, it's like, how long can you put through these circumstances? How, how long can you endure and how long can also, crucially for them as well, how long can you do it with a smile on your face was something I didn't realize as well. Cheerfulness in the face of adversity was something else that they like yeah. prioritized quite significantly. Yes. It yeah. blew my mind. Absolutely. Uh, and, and in many respects, that's, that's all that's happening um, on some of, the, some of the training that we get put through. Uh, we have another training mission, which uh, I, I do 12 days underwater in this Aquarius habitat off the coast of Florida. And we were on a simulated asteroid mission. So we, we were diving twice a day down to the surface and, and, and treating it as how would we explore an asteroid? How might we anchor ourselves and maneuver around and take samples and going back to our habitat in the evenings? Um, and again, there you're, you're put under pressure, put under stressful conditions as well. Was it something that you knew you would cope with well, being in those sort of psychologically stressful environments? Um, I had a fair idea that I, I would be okay because, you know, 18 years in the military, you've, you've put through your paces many, many times. I'd, I'd done resistance to uh, interrogation training. In fact, I was a resistance to interrogation instructor and a, a combat survival instructor as well. So 
been on enough courses that I kind of knew myself. I knew how I'd, I'd work and operate in those situations. But um, you're, you're never quite sure. You know, you're mm. never quite sure what the agency are going to throw at you and, and how you're going to react uh, under prolonged periods of time. And, and actually, when you get into space, no one's quite sure how they're going to fully react in those scenarios. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an environment you can't prepare for fully. So before we do come on to that, within the training then, was there anything that did surprise you? You know, you can prepare to an extent, but you don't know necessarily what they're going to get you with. What did surprise you? Or also perhaps was that, was that also the toughest part of it? I don't know. I think the thing that surprised me was um, the learning Russian language mm. because I was having to exercise a skill that, uh, well, I didn't really have it. <laughs> I did. I got a grade C at French GCSE. Yeah, okay. Hadn't spoken a foreign language since. And at the age of 37 was told, well, you need to get to intermediate high level of Russian fairly quickly because you're going to fly a, uh, you know, a Russian capsule and, and only Russian is spoken. All your documents, all your manuals will be in written Russian. Um, so crack on. And, and that for me was a huge challenge that, you know, the spacewalk training, the robotic arm training, the electrical and technical training was that was water off a duck's back to me. But learning another language was hard, hard work. How did you get on with it then? Uh, just time and effort. It yeah. really, really was. I mean, we have an amazing people to help us. Uh, the great thing about working in that environment is uh, nobody's trying to make you fail. Once you're selected as an astronaut, everybody wants to make you succeed. And so there are so many resources you can draw on and great people who are there to help you. Were your family supportive of this choice and this training? Because it's an incredibly arduous thing, not just for you, personal toll on you, but like you said there, time sink, right? Mm. Like, You've got, young, you've got a young family and you're going to, oh, I need to learn how to conjugate Russian verbs, you know? <laughs> yes, no, they were. And, and um, I was very fortunate. I've got the most incredibly supportive uh, wife and, and family as well. But at the time, we didn't have um, any children. And, but my wife, Rebecca, had been in the military herself. That's where we met. She'd done operational deployments to Kosovo, Macedonia. So, you know, when it came to me uh, going to through astronaut selection, I remember there was one time we where things were getting a bit serious. I was down to the final 44. I was about to go to the medical week, which is a long week and it's very intrusive. It's not the kind of thing you would go through and, and take lightly unless you are really serious about the outcome. And that's when we had the big decision and said, look, you know, there is a, a, a greater than zero chance here that I could be selected as an astronaut. Are we fully committed to this if, if, if I get selected? And of course, the answer was, well, how could we not be? You know, how could you... How could you look back in five, 10 years time and say, yeah, I didn't really grasp that opportunity uh, without having a niggling regret that maybe you should have done. That is such a serious conversation for two partners to have, isn't it? It to is. Say, you know, not, not only will I be away for six, you know, six months, possibly more, and there could be more in the future. There's, you know, there's a risk, isn't there? The very serious risk that you, you have you yeah. have to discuss and digest together. Yeah, abs absolutely. Um, and it's it's a life changing decision, as, as you know, many people have life changing decisions. Uh, but this was definitely one of those, and and where it involved, you know, moving to Germany, up uprooting, and um, completely changing the planned lifestyle that we may have had, and just embracing the the unknown, really embracing the uncertainty, but, but being prepared to kind of enjoy the journey. How did you reconcile then the fact on a personal level that you were going to spend six months up there away from said wife, said children? Mm. I mean, the six months in space, actually, from a point of view of time, that was, wasn't really a hardship. I mean, I'd done six months operational deployments in the military and my American colleagues were going on year long deployments to Afghanistan and had been to Iraq. And so from that point of view, that, that wasn't something that was alien to me or difficult to reconcile. But, uh, uh, and from a risk point of view, I know <laughs> Rebecca always jokes that I was far, far safer on the space station than I was on my day job as a test pilot, probably. Mm. Um, but no, there, there is risk involved clearly. And there, there is a chance that, you know, something catastrophic could happen and you have to, uh, be realistic about that and you have to prepare for that and I, like everything we do is about preparation and training of course I prepared for that eventuality as well and that, that at least gave me some comfort that if something did happen then you know my family would be cared for and looked after is there a uh, a degree of detachment almost you know I, I'm not trying to sort of personally pry here a little bit but you have to almost I'm thinking about um, you know, other people I had who've recently had children, the way they're so, so attached to them. 
and it, I just can't, I almost can't comprehend it. The, the, the almost brutality of saying saying goodbye. I know you do it all the mm. time because of the military side of things, but still, it it feels so confronting to me. I I don't know. Yes, it, it really is, and, and and it's certainly having young children. I mean that that makes it so much more difficult. But then I think on the, on the flip side of that coin, you've got to think about who you are as a person and what message you're sending to your children about, um, you know, do you change who you are? Do you stop taking any risk? Do you stop being the person that you, know, that, that you are? And what message does that send? And uh, it is something you have to wrestle with. Um, and I think, you know, many people who do difficult, dangerous jobs or jobs that require them to spend a long time away from family have to wrestle with these very difficult scenarios and find that balance. And, um, you know, I'm comfortable that we've, we've struck a, a balance with the family. And, and when I'm you know home, I try and be as good as I can be as a father and a husband and spend as much time as possible with my family. That's what keeps me grounded. And it's, it's my favorite pastime. I think you've just saying that then about the young children, the, the difference to me, I think, is whether it's you or whether it's Rebecca, you've got choice, right? You've chosen to, the career path you're on. You've got choice about the deployments you're on, et cetera. When you factor in those dependents, you know, they are people for whom you are responsible. And so that change must change the equation completely, right? You've now got an entire factor that you have to, you have to think about and consider that you didn't in a way when you didn't have children. Absolutely. Yes, you do. Um, it completely changes the dynamic. And, and that's where the difficulty comes in is, mm. is where does that balance now lie? Um, when it was just Rebecca and myself, clearly, um, we were both going off and doing what we wanted to do and, and able to discuss that. And uh, it would have had a, a huge impact on our lives, but, but one that, you know, not nearly as much as bringing up you know, young children into the world. So you've got to be, uh, you know, factor that in as well. So saying goodbye to them then before your flight, December 2015, was it was that conversation or moment different to ones previously where you're sort of going away for a bit of time? Was the, the fact that it was space, did it change it? I think it changed it because you are very aware that you're putting yourself in harm's way uh, and and um, and also that level of, of remoteness and, and detached uh, detachedness that you're going to experience makes it different, different and difficult as well. Um, Interestingly, from a family perspective, you know, Rebecca told me later that actually the, the six months in space was far easier to deal with than the two and a half years beforehand of training, which was incredibly disruptive. I mean, for 50 percent, if not more of that time, that two and a half years before I was away. Mm. Um, but it would be in two week bursts, three week bursts. And that disruption to family routine and family life was very difficult to deal with. Whereas actually when I went off to space, like, well, life's easier now he's at there. Yeah, she, she knew where I was, you know, um, I, you know, I wasn't going anywhere else. Um, Not in a cave for eight days. Yeah, yeah. Your clothes. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so in some respects that, that gave an element of stability yeah. to, the, to the situation. Uh, you mentioned earlier about the, the Russian, right? You took off in a Soyuz from, from Kazakhstan. Could you tell us the sort of pre liftoff process rituals? Just tell us what that was like. Yes. Well, on, on launch day, you want everything to run smoothly. Uh, and so everything is timelined to per perfection with plenty of time built into the program if there are slips, if things do go wrong. So it's really well choreographed. And, and we've done this many, many times now. So you're also following a pattern of tradition. Um, and from the moment you get up to the breakfast that you have with a backup crew and your flight surgeon to the signing of the door, the orthodox blessing um the walking out to the bus to the certain music that's played uh, and the farewell ceremonies and and then even the weeing on the back tire of the bus before you get to the rocket itself something that yuri gagarin did on the 12th of april 1961 and, and every astronaut and cosmonaut who's flown to space from baikonur since has has followed in those footsteps so it is a day full of tradition and ceremony but actually part of that routine is helping things to go seamlessly till the moment of liftoff Okay, so let's go there then to that moment. You're inside the craft, close, cramped. What's running through your head at that moment in time? At that moment, it's a real switch, a mental switch, um, because there's been so much sort of pomp and ceremony and the media and interviews and, and the buzz beforehand. And that's the moment where there's just three of you in a spacecraft. The hatch is closed. It's very claustrophobic, but you kind of normalize that again by making it feel cozy. It's like, okay, this is it. You've, you've had your last breath of fresh air for six months. Um, and just kind of focus on this, this environment. 
and the spacecraft itself. And that is where the, the switch flicks and it's kind of, you kind of just say, right, I'm coming back to Earth in six months time. But for the next six months, my life is here and this is where I need to be focused on 100% professional astronaut. Um, and actually, it's quite a selfish thing, but it actually is what helps you to, you know, to focus and, and work efficiently as a crew member is to be able to just leave everything else behind and just, you know, focus on that one thing for the next six months. What was the first breath of fresh air like? When you got <laughs> it wasn't as pleasant as you would think, actually. Um, everybody says, you know, oh, they you know those first smells of Earth. And uh, but the reality is that when the capsule opens, there's a scorching around the capsule. It's probably set fire to a bit of grass around the prairie. Um, uh, and yeah, it's not a pleasant combination of smells. And then some Welcome home. burly crew member comes in, ground crew member comes in who's been sweating all day and yanks you out the capsule and your head's spinning. Um, it's not really until, you know, uh, a day later that you kind of get to enjoy the fresh air. Mm. Okay, so uh, I've moved forward a little bit there, but we're in takeoff. Can you try to describe for me the sort of the sensation as you try to depart from sort of where we are right now, getting yeah. away? What does it what does it feel like on the body? Um, so on the body, the, the the first thing is the noise, then the the vibration as the engines fire up, and the rocket is held on the pad for just a couple of seconds, even at a hundred percent. So you have, you know, this pent up energy is 9 million horsepower and the vibrations going through are incredible. It's something you don't feel in the simulator. You know, mm. in the simulator, we've gone through this. We, we know the temperatures, the pressures, everything's normal. But when you do that in the simulator, you're just sitting there not going anywhere. Um, now you've got this, you know, very, very fierce vibration. The noise is overwhelming and then the G-force kicks in after about sort of five to 10 seconds after liftoff. And it gets you quite rapidly up to about four G's of acceleration. So that's the same as having four people on your chest. And instantly you have to remember the lessons in the centrifuge and focus on your breathing, lock your chest in place and, and really just kind of uh, look at where we are in the launch sequence, what's coming up next. And what does come up next? Then you go through staging. So first stage boosters separate um, and there's a big loss of power. And then the second stage kicks in again. Nose fairing gets jettisoned. So that's when we can see outside the windows, space, blackness approaching. Um, and the rocket goes from being vertical to horizontal because you're flying this curve. Um, you've got the altitude, you're outside of the atmosphere. And that's the main thing is get outside of the air as quickly as possible. Now there's no drag. Now it's about speed. It's about 17,500 miles per hour. So that needs a horizontal rocket and it needs you back at 4Gs again. And that's mainly the third stage. Um, and what's funny there is, is you pass this point where for a few minutes it, you, it, you're going through this sequencing and everything feels normal in a way. Uh, you've, you've gone as through as this be, yeah. Uh, yeah, in the simulator as much as can be. You've, you've felt these G-forces in the centrifuge. But there's a point there where you just think, this is crazy. This is absolutely barking mad. Um, the G-forces are just relentless. Mm. Um, you're focusing on your breathing and you can't really comprehend the speed that you're doing. But you know it's just this very violent experience and you're being taken, whether you like it or not, into this realm, into this environment that that <laughs> it's going to take just as much energy uh, to get you back down to earth again. Um, so it, it's quite a strange experience. You know what? I hadn't thought about it in those terms uh, of your capacity to sort of comprehend and analyze what's going on is significantly impeded by the physical nature of what's happening. That I guess the time for reflection maybe doesn't even happen on the craft. It's when you get it's on the space station. It's when you get back perhaps that you actually start to sort of rationalize, comprehend and put some context on what's happened. Yes. Yeah, it is. Um, and what's funny is, is actually when the main engines cut out after eight minutes and 48 seconds of launch, it's actually really peaceful and very, very quiet. It's very serene and tranquil. And, and the Earth's rotation, although you're going 25 times the speed of sound, you don't see that because you're so high up. It's a very, very graceful passage over the continents and over Earth. So on the one hand, you're in this wonderfully beautiful, tranquil, quiet environment, but you know what you've just been through to get there. So you know you've been placed into a very, very unusual environment. And you know that to get back to Earth, 
<laughs> you're going to have to go through this crazy re-entry as well. Mm. Okay, so tell me then about those first, you know, once you're up there and in that sort of moment, more of serenity, looking at Earth, first thoughts and, and reflections in that moment. Uh, it, I mean, it's, Earth is stunning. The th first thought is the blackness of space, the blackest black you'll ever see. And it's like nothing else. Every time we look up, uh, you know, we see a blue sky. Um, we don't see the blackness of space. Even at nighttime, there's a bit of air glow in the lower parts of Earth's atmosphere. So we never really tr truly see the deep a soul-sucking blackness that <laughs> that space is. It's the weirdest, you know, black out there. Uh, and then there's this beautiful planet against that backdrop. And the contrast is is really quite stark. And that's why everybody says, you know, Earth just looks so beautiful because it's this, uh, you know, blue-white uh, uh, orb. And it's so obvious that it's a planet that's thriving with life, a dynamic, vibrant planet. Um, and the beautiful colours, the greens of the forest, the the, the um, oranges of the desert, the Sahara and Western Australia, just you know, it's absolutely striking. Um, and you know, that's before you see sunrises, sunsets, moonrises, aurora, uh, the Milky Way rising. It's it's quite overwhelming to see all of that. I'd never thought about the contrast before. The sort of um, you know, you see Earth, the photo Earthrise right for the first time, and the sort of like you said that globule of life in the blackness and I hadn't rationalized it in that way before the, the, sur the surrounding vacuum and the enormity of it and what when you're down here feels absolutely massive and ginormous and actually how small it is in the context of all of those things mm. you saying it like that has really sort of contextualized it for me though yeah and it, it just brings it home that, that that's what Earth is. It is it is a cradle of life that's where we can survive that's the planet on which we've you know evolved that's there to support us nowhere else Every, we can go other places. It's a bit like you might go down to the depths of the oceans in a submarine and, and okay, great, that's you know incredible to explore those locations, but it'll kill you outside in a heartbeat as mm -hmm. it will in space. You know, it's not the environment we were designed for. So when you look back at Earth um, and you see it in that remote blackness, it just gives you this deep appreciation of, of what that planet means to us. What was the aurora like seeing that? The aurora's stunning. Um, we... Uh, happened to be in space during a period of high solar activity. So something I expected to see maybe once or twice, and we were seeing it, you know, two, three times a week. Uh, and it varies in intensity. And if the solar activity is is very high, then the uh, the aurora will actually kind of stretch up and it gets a bit reddish on the top. Um, and it gets as high as the space station up at 400 kilometers. So the whole ISS can be flying through this green fog, which uh, is incredible to see. You go to the cupola window and it's just wrapping itself around around the window. And then at other times you'll see it on the horizon. So you get the kind of wavy strips of, of, of green aurora. But I think, again, it brings it home that the, the planet's alive. It's, you know, that's the magnetosphere that's protecting us from this radiation. And, and we see this from above and, and you get to appreciate everything the planet's doing for us. How spectacularly beautiful. It's unbelievable. It really is. And Thunderstorms as well, you know, seen from above. The, the, the whole planet at any one time, there are thousands of thunderstorms going on. So when you orbit the Earth in the night side, it's only 45 minutes of night and then into the daytime again. So in that 45 minutes, we'll see thousands of thunderstorms by night. And that's, that's incredible to see. Tell me about a typical day. What was your routine like? Typical day, um, kind of up at six o'clock. Um, we have a, a morning brief, which is around the world tag up with all the mission control centers. So, you know, have a cup of tea and a, a quick bite to eat for breakfast. Um, personal hygiene is just a, a hot, wet flannel and a, a bit of a camping wash. Um, and then after our, our morning brief, we get on with the day's work from, say, 7.30 uh, in the morning till about 7.30 at night, uh, a stop for lunch. And you can take, you know, coffee breaks, tea breaks in that time. We work as individuals most of the time, actually. Um, you know, there's six, maybe seven people on board the space station, but actually very few tasks require us to work together. So you kind of crave that, that, that socialization in the evenings of coming together and talking about your day and enjoying a meal. Um, most of the day is working on science and maintenance activities, keeping the space station running. Um, occasionally, there'll be something like a spacewalk that will really focus the whole crew. Um, or a visiting cargo vehicle when suddenly three and a half tons of cargo needs unpacking in a very short space of time. There's never enough time 
given to do all the jobs. So you're constantly busy. Uh, you constantly feel a little bit behind the schedule. Um, but there is time to kind of go to that cupola window, pick up a camera, have a coffee and take some photos. Uh, you did a spacewalk as well whilst you there. Yes, yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, spacewalking is incredible. It's like, it's like another order of magnitude of, you know, going into space is one thing. Um, going outside the hatch uh, is another. You've got this mini space station on your back that's keeping you alive, but you've got the freedom to just move around outside. And uh, you're very aware, again, that you're kind of feeling small and insignificant in this ocean of, of blackness. Um, but again, it's very beautiful. It's very tranquil to, to kind of look down on that. Um, spacewalking is, uh, is, I guess it's a bit like watching a duck, you know, it, it looks very effortless and, and for the astronauts doing it, move around in weightlessness, but we are working really, really hard really? inside. Yeah. Uh, I mean, every single motion of your arms is draining energy and your fingers. Uh, we, when we practice in the swimming pool, we'll go to extraordinary lengths just to minimize the number of tether swaps or clips. If we can reduce it by two clips by doing things in a different sequence, we'll do it because every single motion of your fingers and thumbs is draining you. It's, it's like being on the inside of a pressurized balloon. So to force this suit against its will um, takes an enormous amount of energy. So a, a six to eight hour spacewalk, you're physically drained at the end of it. Um, so it's, it's hard work. It's, it's mentally demanding. The level of concentration is phenomenal. Uh, we kind of have, have a saying, there's, there's nothing more important than what you're doing right now to try and keep us focused because you've got voices on the radio telling you what to do. You've got to think about where your other crewmate is, what they're doing, what you might have to do to help them if they get into a problem, what's coming up next in your timeline. But if you start thinking too much about all of that and forget to put your tether down and let go, then you've just you know, caused a catastrophe. Um, so you've just got to have such focus and concentration. I was just about to ask you what's connecting you to yeah. what's, what's keeping <laughs> you there. So that's the answer, right? It's your, it's your tether. And... It's your tether. Yes. Yeah. We do have a backup tether. It's like a thin steel wire, like a fishing reel kind of reels out. But it's going to be a bad day if you fall off the space station because that wire might snap. Even if it doesn't snap, you're now on a very long trajectory. You could smash into a solar panel, a radiator, um, which could be catastrophic as well. Um, so you just don't want to make a mistake. And I think for astronauts, we're very conscious that there's a whole team of people working for us and helping us. And if something goes wrong on launch or reentry or inside the space station, it's probably not your fault. It might be catastrophic, but, you know, you've got options out on a spacewalk, if something goes wrong, it's probably your fault because mm. the scope for human error is huge. And I think that's why, you know, we just try and keep as much focus as possible. I find it really striking that when you're talking about the catastrophic consequences of that happening, you didn't mention your personal safety in that. You mentioned the solar panel. You mentioned the radiator. Yeah. Oh, someone's going to have to go and fix that. <laughs> What's happening to you, mate? Yeah. <laughs> if that happens, you know? Well, there is that as well. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> sure. Um... Okay, so everyone's listening to what you're doing on the spaceship. Everyone's watching you, what you're doing on the spaceship. How did you cope with the loss of privacy whilst you're up there? Yeah, I, I guess some of the training prepares you for that. The, uh, the underwater piece, you know, there, there were cameras there all the time. It's a bit like Big Brother. So you get used to mission control invading your privacy. Um, in the, on the space station, we after that kind of 7.30 at night, round the world, wrap up of the day's activities, the cameras go off. So that's when, you know, we can move around the space station and know that we're not being watched at every moment. Uh, if you happen to decide to just be floating around in your shorts, having done some exercise. Um, so yeah, there are moments where you have privacy, not a huge amount clearly, but you just, you just get used to that. That's what's required of you. And in terms of, I've, I've tried repeatedly during the course of the interview to sort of plumb some description of fear out of you that I haven't really quite got to. But when, when you're up there, was it the spacewalk that perhaps challenged you the most in that way, where that, where that fear started to creep in? Was it, or was it something else that I haven't, I haven't sort of Well, considered? actually, very, very early on in, uh, in the mission, when we were trying to dock to the space station, we had a, a problem um, and the Soyuz aborted the automatic docking and our commander had to take manual control. And then we had a subsequent computer failure. So we had a thruster failure followed by computer failure. So the screens were down. 
and rapidly things became far, far more difficult. And Yuri was having a really hard time just getting us docked. We had a, a near collision with the space station. So, you know, the heart rate's up, definitely. And I think in that scenario, what really struck me was how powerless, you know, myself and Tim Copra, my NASA crewmate, we were, um, you know, with no computer screens, with no thrusters. It was all just down to, to Yuri to be able to do this docking. We kind of sat there thinking, all right, well... <laughs> This needs to work. Yeah. Um, and then out on the, the spacewalk, um, Tim Cobra's helmet started filling with water after about five hours. And that happened to my ESA classmate, Luca Parmitano, a few years before, ended up in a near drowning incident. So that rapidly turned into a, a situation where we had to get Tim back inside very, very quickly. So there are these scenarios where things go wrong and the training has to kick in and you have to perform. But it's, it's a bit like you said earlier about the adrenaline. You kind of use that adrenaline to help you to focus and to stay sharp. Um, the, the thing is not to allow the adrenaline to overtake you and to become uncontrolled panic. Mm. Uh, and that's why we, we train and prepare is to make sure that we always stay on the right side of that curve. You uh, returned to Earth June 18th, 2016. What was it like? I, 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 you assume, and we'll, we'll come to being reunited with your family, and that's the obvious question here, but there's also the goodbye, right, to the people you've spent 24 hours a day with for 100 days straight. Yeah. So that's emotionally difficult, presumably. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really weird because in the military, we get we become quite good at uh, rehabilitating, and we've learned that through operational deployments, and it's important to have this consolidation period and, and integrate back into family life and normal life after an extreme event. Uh, in a way that helps people do that. Uh, and in space, we know that's going to happen, but the crew, <laughs> the crews, uh, really, their requirements and their needs come second to the mission. So um, you go through this scenario where you've been isolated um, in this strange environment. You've worked together for so many years, and now you've spent six months side by side. But very soon after landing, you're, you're dispersed to your own space agencies, you know, to, to Russia, back to America, whether it's Japan or Canada, or me back to Europe, back to Germany. And you're then thrown into the scientific community with a million experiments to do, lots of debriefing um, and lots of PR activities. And it can be overwhelming. Mm. You know, you, you've, you've left the tranquility of a space station where nobody can phone you. Only about 100 people are allowed to email you and they're not allowed to email you about work. Um, all of your day's activities just come through mission control. It's a very, very lovely environment to live and work in. And now you're into this overwhelming chaos um, and the stress and, the, and, and trying to also deal with what you've just been through and reintegrating with your family and the work environment. So that post-mission phase can be very, very stressful. It seems absurd to suggest there was more chaos, more intensity back on Earth than yeah. there was flying through space. It's just extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? Think like, oh, you have PR, PR opportunities yeah. now. Oh, I've got to fill up another test tube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. Is, it's, it seems so ironic. Um, okay, then. So how did you... That's a challenge. That's obviously a clear, clearly a challenge. You described it as such. How did yeah. you process that? How did you, how did you navigate through that? Um, for, for me, it's really family. It was getting, you know, family is, is, is a stable point and, and, and normalizing your life again. So um, just like we try and normalize life on the space station as quickly as possible so we can cope with it in that environment. So I normalize my life as quickly as possible back into a routine and, and a structure. Um, and family really helped me to do that. So although I was having to, you know, still travel around a lot and, and do these experiments and do these debriefs, actually integrating back with the family was what kept me grounded. We're um, coming to the end of our conversation, and I mentioned your book in the intro, so we'll talk about it a little bit now. Tell me, um, in a couple of sentences, what's the premise? What's it about? Well, the book is about the human story uh, of spaceflight, um, of what we've been doing and why we've been doing it. And uh, the inspiration for it was really because four of my friends are about to go back to the moon, maybe as early as next year. They're training right now for Artemis 2. It's going to be a bit like Apollo 8. It's going to orbit the moon in preparation for Artemis 3, the boots on the surface again. And I kind of thought, well, you know, what's the journey been since those early days of the Apollo and uh, Soviet space race? And, and what have we been doing in between? And astronauts ultimately are ordinary people who are being asked to do an extraordinary job. And there have been many fun and interesting stories along the way. So it's, a, it's kind of a behind the scenes look at that whole era from from Mercury through to Artemis. Any 
stories in particular that you really identified with? Um, I just love the unknowns. As in, it's very easy now with hindsight to, to look back and think, well, of course, we would have known that a human was surviving space. But Yuri Gagarin had no idea he was going to survive that first orbit. Um, and, and then there's the funny aspect of the geopolitics as well, you know, in the Soviet Union, the fact that they actually hid the code. There was a code for the re-entry engines because it was all going to re-enter all by itself. But in an emergency, the crew member might have to activate those engines and re-enter re the Earth's atmosphere by themselves. But they thought there was a risk that they might defect. So they hid the code <laughs> somewhere in the capsule. And the idea was that if they really needed it in an emergency, they would tell the crew member where the code was so that they could activate their engines and come back safely into Earth's atmosphere. And it's remarkable things like that that remind you of what was going on in that, in that kind of era. Um, uh, and then some of the, the times where uh, the crews, you know, don't perhaps perform as well as they could be. The, the Skylab 3 crew uh, were called the mutineers. Now, I think they got a bit of a hard time there. They, they didn't really mutiny. But, but there was definitely very, very difficult times between ground and space as to what was going on and the demands being placed upon the crew. And the same happened in Apollo 7. Um, you know, none of those astronauts flew again after that mission. And, and you kind of think, yes, it doesn't always go smoothly according to plan. Um, and then there are practical jokes, you know, John Young taking a corned beef sandwich up into space uh, that ended up having a, a hearing in Washington going right the way to the top about how could they possibly do something as stupid as that. Um, uh, when I was on board, Scott Kelly managed to get a gorilla suit up there somehow. Uh, thankfully, that didn't result in a disciplinary hearing. But <laughs> uh, I mean, there are all sorts of you know stories uh, along the way. Some funny, some sad, and 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 some that kind of really normalise what it is that we're doing. Mm. I, I just you mentioned it there, so it got me thinking that we were I was talking about you know um, NASA and the Soviets earlier, and is it right to sort of place that that space race and that geopolitics in the past? Is it is it fair to say you know? That was, you know, we were, we were, we were naive. We've, we've learned politics no longer has anything to do with space exploration. Politics no longer has anything to do with the process by which we're going there. And I'm saying that now, and I know that's not the case because you've got, you know, Branson, Musk, etc., and their whole little competition going on between themselves. But geopolitics must still inform what happens up there. That must still be something that you guys have to navigate whilst you're up there. Yes. Well, I think uh, for the future, definitely. And I think that's that's another reason for writing the book is, is we are just embarking on this new era of space exploration, which is very exciting, very interesting, because you know, going back to the moon with new technology to have a permanent habitation at the South Pole, the commercialization of low Earth orbit that's enabling us, the, the national space agencies to, to do those missions with their, their funding. Um, but this era of space station operation where Everyone's had a common goal. We've all worked together. We've transcended the difficult polit politics on the ground to many respects. That's coming to an end. And we are embarking on a new era where there's a kind of a new race, which is both defense, the, the use of space for, for defense. It's the ultimate high ground, uh, the commercialization where that's leading, use of resources, well, uh, you know, on the surface of the moon, in the future on Mars, for example. We don't have the regulatory framework in place yet to be able to do that um, in, a, in a way that we all agree on a framework for exploration today. That's worrying. Um, and so I, I think that it is a time where we do need to address these, these issues right now as to how do we move forward beyond the space station, which has given us such a period of stability. You know, I look at those future prospects and I'm just in quite, I think, well, let's look at human history when we've been presented with, you know, new resources, new, new technologies. What have we done? We haven't harmoniously shared it, mm. you know, and that, that gives me cause for concern. Absolutely. Um, you know, there are a lot of people working very hard on trying to get some sort of, um, of regulate, regulatory framework in place. The Artemis Accords is one method of doing that, but we're not there yet. Tim Peake, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.